All right, good morning. It's, uh, my name is Brandon. I'm one of the pastors here, normally kind of giving care to business and budgets and buildings and such like that. But this morning, uh, encouraged to get to teach, but uh, not necessarily an encouraging passage. Uh, if you read ahead this morning, somebody came up to me and said, hey, are you okay? Right? I didn't. I didn't know what they were taking at first. Were, oh, but I read what you guys are preaching this morning, so I just wanted to make sure you were doing okay. Uh, so we're going to look today at uh, Ecclesiastes three sixteen to four three, and uh, the topics are death and oppression. So you know, as you kind of think about the way that people talk about time, they say things like, "Life comes at you fast. Time flies when you're having fun." You'll blink, and they'll be grown up. Sometimes the days are long, but the weeks are short. You know, birthdays are coming faster and faster these years. Have you noticed that those things are true? You know, I can look and see some people in our congregation, and I remember when they were babies, right? Not to mention my own kids growing up in a blink. Some of you may remember when their parents were babies. And, uh, you know, you log on to Facebook, and they bless you with those memories of when you used to be young and your beard wasn't so white. <clears throat> and uh, you, you start college. I've been blessed to come hang out with college students some the last few weeks uh, up in North Greenville. And uh, all of a sudden you're graduating and trying to figure out what you're going to do with your life. Or you started a job and then 10 years later you wonder where the time went. Uh, all of these things are kind of what we would call clues, right? They're clues that what God tells us about our lives in the scriptures are true. Life is a vapor, quickly fading. And unless the Lord returns before our days are done, it'll end in death. But we're working as hard as we can to avoid death. Medical, pharmaceutical research, health and fitness, nutrition, supplements, make sure you get your eight hours of sleep, and if those don't work, you know, at least you can amuse yourself to death digitally with kind of whatever flavor you prefer to avoid thinking about it. So we're all going to do what we can, or we're doing all that we can, to push off the inevitable. But when it, when it comes down to it, all of life is preparing for the inevitability of death. And we're some of the worst in history at preparing for and dealing with death. In our culture, we've trivialized it. Media, movies, video games, so on. We've become desensitized to it so long as it's happening somewhere else. Or we've outsourced it to hospitals and care facilities. Many of us have, have really never been in the presence of death unless it's our job or our profession to kind of spend time in those spaces. And uh, even though we know in the back of our minds that this is how our stories end, it still comes as a shock when it happens. If you're following local news or you're connected to the Furman campus in any way, uh, then you know that Bryce Stanfield, a 21-year-old Furman football player, passed away this week after collapsing in practice. And it's jarring. Right? Some, some folks in our church knew him personally. And it hurts to think of parents losing a son, of the lost potential of his life, and when someone young dies so close to home, it's really sobering, isn't it? it? Reminds us that none of us are promised our next breath. The finality and injustice of death don't sit well with us. 
it's awfully and completely humbling to realize that the story goes on without us. We're not the main character in the story of the world. And to realize that, that uh, Ecclesiastes 3.11, uh, Matt talked about last week as we were talking about the seasons of life, uh, that God's put eternity into the hearts of man. We know that this is not the way that it's supposed to be. We were meant for eternal fellowship with God and perfect peace with him, with one another, and with creation. But since death seems far off to us for most of our lives, and since we can almost completely avoid it if we don't have something to do that that kind of puts us directly in touch with it on a daily basis, it can be difficult to dwell on passages about death in the scriptures. So I'm going to invite you to stretch with me as we kind of read and work through uh, these thoughts this morning. So we'll we'll read uh, the text from chapter 3 and then uh, make some commentary, and we'll come back to chapter 4 in a few minutes. The, The teacher here says, I also observed under the sun, there is wickedness at the place of judgment, and there is wickedness at the place of righteousness. I said to myself, God will judge the righteous and the wicked, since there is a time for every activity and every work. I said to myself, this happens so that God may test the children of Adam, And they may see for themselves that they are like animals. For the fate of the children of Adam and the fate of animals is the same. As one dies, so dies the other. They all have the same breath. People have no advantage over animals, since everything is futile. All are going to the same place. All come from dust, and all return to dust. Who knows if the spirits of the children of Adam go upward, and the spirits of animals go downward to the earth. I have seen that there is nothing better than for a person to enjoy his activities, because that is his reward. For who can enable him to see what will happen after he dies? You see why somebody asked me if I was okay. Uh, <clears throat> as, we, as you kind of just start to look at that, at the beginning of verse 16, uh, if you're uh, an underliner, I want you to underline, I observed under the sun. Because that sets the context for the observations that follow. Solomon is explaining death from the perspective of someone under the sun. The thoughts that follow his observation are uh, natural conclusions for somebody who's not applying a gospel-informed perspective to the reality of death. What do we see with our eyes when somebody dies? They're gone. They're out of reach. The spirit of life, the breath of God that once infused their bodies and made them all that we knew them to be, is no more. Death is the crescendo of Solomon's refrain that everything is meaningless, futile, a pursuit of the wind. As we've considered over these past weeks, uh, wisdom, meaning, pleasure, possessions, work, the seasons of life, they all end in death. And at that point, there really isn't anything left to do. What we've accomplished will be passed on to others. What we've left undone will be someone else's responsibility. Death is the final enemy to be overcome. And just as a spoiler to hang on to, we're going to kind of go into this for a while, but it has been overcome, and we will end on a note of hope. Okay? So don't think it's all going downhill for the whole service. Um, so as we consider death and our mindset regarding death, we're going to kind of make three big observations before thinking about how we should live in light of those observations. So the first observation, if you're a note taker, is that death is humbling. Death is humbling. 
Verse 18, he says, I said to myself, this happens so that God may test the children of Adam and they may see for themselves that they are like animals. That's not a particularly uplifting verse, but it does what it's meant to do in humbling us. What distinguishes us from animals in a strictly under the sun uh, view? It's not much in the final accounting according to Solomon. We come from the dust, we return to the dust. We occupy ourselves with life under the sun, which ends in futility. But Psalm 49 kind of says the same thing in a different way. It gives us a little different angle on the statement of, on humanity. Psalm 49:20 uh, ends the psalm, mankind with his assets, but without understanding, is like the animals that perish. Do you hear the difference there? That, that without understanding. So the difference between a, a meaningless life and death and one that distinguishes us from the animals seems to be understanding. And in Psalm 49, the life that demonstrates understanding is one that is lived for God rather than self. But that's kind of hard for us. Uh, our, our instincts all kind of run in the direction of living for ourselves. What Paul described as having our appetites as gods, right? We just live to scratch the next itch. That leads us to believe that we're in charge of our lives and that we have all the time we choose to do whatever we want to do. But that isn't true, is it? We're not in charge of the universe, much less our lives, nor do we have unlimited time. James calls that mindset an arrogant one. He says in James 4, uh, Come now, you who say today or tomorrow we will travel to such and such a city and spend a year there and do business and make a profit. Yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring, what your life will be, for you are a vapor that appears for a little while and then vanishes. Instead, you should say, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. But as it is, you boast in your arrogance, and all such boasting is evil. So it's sin to know the good and yet not do it. And so we, we move through our lives. This is the natural state of, of kind of our, our mindset about ourselves. It's like we're the, uh, the main character, the central character in a movie. And every interaction that happens uh, really finds its meaning in how it impacts us or maybe how it interferes with us. So we tend to think of everything first uh, and everyone first and how it relates to me. Uh, is this thing making my life easier? Is it more comfortable? Am I happier? It's uh, self-evidently a good thing. Is it making life more difficult, bringing me pain and suffering, making me sad, anxious, angry? then it's got to be a bad thing. And in our lives under the sun, it seems like those judgments are obviously correct. So it's, it's so normal to live that way that there, there wasn't really even a word until 2012 for the rare glimpse we get of not being the center of the universe. Somebody uh, coined the term sonder to uh, describe the feeling of realizing that we're surrounded by people who all have lives as complex as our own, and don't disappear from the world as soon as we're not aware of them. But the reality is that an estimated 109 billion humans have died as of 2022, according to the Wikipedia. None of us are the main characters in the story of the world. You might remember as many as a few hundred of that 109 billion, maybe a couple dozen that were directly related to you. But for the most part, they lived out their lives under the sun in ways that for them were complex and challenging, sometimes deeply meaningful, at others boring and routine. 
they uh, had deep relationships, or they didn't. They had kids, or they didn't. They faced problems and overcame some of them. But ultimately, their stories ended. And so will mine, and so will yours. And the psalmist knew this, right? Patrick just served us by reading Psalm 90. Our lives last 70 years, or if we're strong, 80 years. Even the best of them are struggle and sorrow. Indeed, they pass quickly, and we fly away. The psalmist says, life is tough, and it goes by fast. Praise God that we aren't the main character, and that this isn't all that there is for us. As you start Psalm 90, he lifts our eyes to heaven, frames the rest of those observations to see God as he rightly is at the center of everything. He says, Lord, you have been our refuge in every generation. Before the mountains were born, before you gave birth to the earth and the world, from eternity to eternity, you are God. That's humbling too, right? But in a different way, an uplifting way. Who's the eternal, ultimate, unchangeable one? No one but our God. He was and is and will be forever. So how should that impact our mindset as a Christian living in a fallen world? Should we have a primarily down and in focus on our lives? Should we interpret the world around us by first asking how it affects us? Or is there something much greater afoot? Imagine what it would do for your life to resign from being the main character, the one that that has to carry all the weight for everything that happens in the world. And what if instead, as we're humbled by our considerations of death, of the difficulty and the brevity of life, what if it turned our thoughts towards a God who is eternal, a God who's powerful, for whom the complexities of creation could be wrapped up in six statements as he created the heavens and the earth. Instead of being discouraged at our smallness, our finitude, we could be awed and comforted by his immensity. Psalm 23 tells us that he is near when we're facing the shadow of death. What would it change about how you live this afternoon or this week if your life was really no longer your own, but God's, since Christ has redeemed you for him? Who would you talk to? Who would you forgive? Who would you ask forgiveness from? Who would you share the gospel with? Who would you invite into life, right, and encourage? What would you do with your things if you knew that life was no longer your own, right? This, this impacts all of life, okay? So death is humbling and freeing in a way because it, it frees us in humility to live the life that God's called us to. Second, if, if we're to live, or second point, if you're note taken here, second, if we're to live wisely, we need to consider what little time we have left. There, there seems to be a real death consciousness when you read the scriptures, you read the New Testament, you see page after page thoughts on the brevity of life, thoughts on your time is coming. And uh, so therefore, there's a lot of ways that we should uh, think about how we will live. And so I wonder, how often do you consider death? Is it too much, too little? Do you look at it from a a biblically informed perspective or maybe more of a cultural one? Uh, Again, Psalm 90 shares some ancient wisdom here. Verse 12, teach us to number our days carefully so that we may develop wisdom in our hearts. The psalmist tells us that in order for us to develop wisdom, we should consider how long we have left to live. We should think about our deaths. 
seems kind of morbid, but some ancients, Christians and other traditions would carry or display something called a memento mori. It's Latin for remember your death or remember you must die. And uh, you, you would see it, if you look at uh, old art works, you'll see sometimes a skull and a bone or wilting flowers, an hourglass. Uh, you'll see um, coffins kind of painted into the margins or dark spaces. And those were all remember, reminders of the reality and the inevitability of death. Why should we consider our deaths? Uh, maybe because the only things that are sure in life are death and taxes? Kind of. Uh, but really, knowing that we have a limited time to live should uh, dictate how we live. Right? Paul says so in Ephesians 5, among a bunch of other passages that we could go to. Pay careful attention then to how you walk. Not as unwise people, but as wise. Thinking back to that, that thought from Psalm 49 on understanding. right? Making the most of the time, because the days are evil. you got to pay careful attention to how you walk. How much of life is really just habit and routine right now? Um, Socrates, I believe, forgive me if I mess up my Greek philosophers, the unexamined life is not worth living. Um, I think Paul is saying the same thing here. Be careful how you walk. This is not a thing to leave to chance or to happenstance. If you had forever to do whatever, you wouldn't have to take such care. But as people kind of ask you this kind of motivational question, hey, if you knew you only had X amount of time to live, a day, a month, a year, 10 years, what would you do? That's kind of a biblical way to think about the rest of your life. Don't take it for granted. Rather, consider what God would have called you to do in your limited time, or what God has called you to do in your limited time here on earth, and then go do it. Uh, reminded, we had dinner with the Touches on uh, Friday night. And uh, if you don't know Johnny and Carrie, they spent five years in Uganda uh, as missionaries. He was a pastor in Powdersville before that. And uh, he was talking about how he had this desire to go on mission. But he said, Lord, when I retire, we're going to go. We're going to the mission field. We're going to you know, pack up everything when I finish whatever. And as he was um, kind of working through those thoughts, he ended up attending the funeral of a friend who died in his 50s. And the, the thought that the Lord placed on his heart was, what makes you think I'm going to let you live to retirement? He said, okay, Lord, I'm ready. Let's go. And, um, you know, in the, the story that kind of unraveled in over the next couple of years, the Lord provided the way and they stopped pastoring, left, went to Uganda where God had called them to serve. But when we start to become conscious of the brevity of life, it, it kind of makes us a little more willing to step into life, right? It makes life more precious. It gives us a, a reason to take hold of the calling that we've been called by, to, to walk worthy of that calling and to take action on it, right? Not to put it off for later. And so as, as with most things, as we're thinking about death, there's, you know, two ditches that we could fall into. Do we think about it too much, too often, or do we think about it too little? So I'm going to ask you to kind of consider, how do you think about death, right? So first, a few thoughts about how you might know that you're thinking about death too much. One, 
You know, you're reading Ecclesiastes and perhaps life feels meaningless in view of death. First, I want to warn you against that because it's a profoundly unbiblical worldview. Uh, it makes sense if you're, you're taking the frame that Solomon does under the sun to say, if all there is is what I can see and touch and taste and smell and hear, then I think ultimately life is meaningless. We're all just cogs in an atomic machine awaiting the heat death of the universe. But that's not the world that we live in. From the first pages of scripture, our lives are imbued with meaning as we relate to God, live our lives as his image bearers, and work to care for and to cultivate creation. We know that there are eternal rewards for those who live faithfully now. And if you're struggling with this trap, please struggle in community. That's going to be a refrain, right? As you're thinking about life, if you're kind of considering death and thinking life is meaningless in view of it, bring that to a pastor, bring that to a small group, have conversation with a believer over coffee, share what's going on in those spaces so that they can encourage you with the truth of scripture. Uh, John Piper answering a question like that said that the meaning of life is to know God and to enjoy God and to reflect some of the beauty of God as we know him in Christ. And one day to see him perfectly and unendingly enjoy him. It's kind of a reflection on Romans 5, 2, where we're called to rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. And we'll, we'll think a little bit more on that thought as we go forward. Another sign that you may be thinking too much of death, perhaps you're living in constant fear of death, yours or someone that you love. It could be paralyzing to you. you. You might be struggling with hypochondria, concerned that every ache or pain or sniffle is a harbinger of doom. I get it, right? If all that we have is life under the sun, death is the final enemy and we will not overcome it. To not face that would be to live in denial. But the truth of the matter is, because we have the gospel, you're not enslaved to a fear of death anymore. Hebrews 2, uh, 14 and 15 says, and I hope you're looking forward to Hebrews as we work through Ecclesiastes. This is a much more hopeful thought on death. Now, since the children have flesh and blood in common, Jesus also shared in these, so that through his death he might destroy the one holding the power of death, that is the devil, and free those who were held in slavery all their lives by the fear of death. So who's putting the fear of death on you? Seems to be the devil, but he has been defeated. Jesus is victorious. And not only that, when you think about this, Jesus went to his death. So we know that we have a great high priest, one who has suffered as we have, who's been tempted as we have, and yet went undefeated. But he went even further to experience and defeat the greatest of our enemies in death. And he did that to free us from living a life under the slavery of the fear of death, among a ton of other things. And so if you are in Christ, living in the fear of death is no longer required of you. You are free. Third thought that you might be uh, thinking too much, perhaps you're longing for death. You may not be suicidal, but you want out. Life under the sun has become meaningless, difficult, tiresome. You might be suffering terribly. Again, if you're in that camp, please share that. Please share that with us. 
I wholeheartedly believe that the, the message of the scriptures is that there is hope for life in this life. And we want to encourage you in that way if you're struggling here. So when we think about encourage, literally to like open you up and pour courage in so that you can face the challenge there. And even as we look a little further into the book of Ecclesiastes, in Ecclesiastes 9, uh, Solomon says, there's hope for whoever is joined with all the living. And I quote this all the time, since a live dog is better than a dead lion. For the living know that they will die, but the dead don't know anything. There's no longer a reward for them because the memory of them is forgotten. So even in what seems to be a pretty dreary book at times, there's hope for the living. And as we consider those, and and there are probably other ways that we could be thinking too much, but these preoccupations with death are all answered with messages of hope from the scriptures. Hope in the here and in the hereafter. We're only about a month and a half away from Easter. If you're feeling beaten down by this life, you're worn out, you're tired, I would call you to look to the cross. But don't stop there. Look to the empty tomb. We weren't meant to be consumed by thoughts and fears of death, but of life abundant, here and now, walking with a resurrected Savior who tasted death for us so that he could provide eternal life. Again, if you're struggling here, like, let's get together. Talk to me after the service. Grab another pastor. Uh, we want to encourage you. You shouldn't struggle with the fear of death with existential questions by yourself. Right? You have permission to tell the truth about how you're struggling, and it will be welcomed and uh, met with compassion. On the other hand, right, how do you know that you might be thinking about death too little? Perhaps you just realized that you really never considered that your time is limited in this life. First, you're welcome, or I'm sorry, I don't know whichever one goes there. Uh, second, you know, this tends to be a little more of an issue with younger people than with older ones, but none of us are immune to it. And uh, we, and I'll still consider myself part of the young crowd in spite of what my daughter tells me, uh, tend to think that we're going to live forever. We at least live as if we do. So we, we work for promotions and status and possessions and other people's opinions. We're rushing from one fire to the next under the tyranny of the urgent, rarely if ever asking if it's worth it. Right? We drown out thoughts of the end of life with the busyness of life. Uh, Pascal had some things to say about that. The psalmist put it this way in Psalm 39. Lord, make me aware of my end and the number of my days so that I will know how short-lived I am. In fact, you have made my days just inches long and my lifespan is as nothing to you. Yes, every human stands only as a vapor. Yes, a person goes about like a mere shadow. Indeed, they rush around in vain gathering possessions without knowing who will get them. Uh, Jesus put it another way. Don't store up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal, but store up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves don't break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. And in life, there's a, a trap set for us, right? Another trap. We think we will live forever. Not in the biblical sense, but in an earthly one. So we rush around in vain, gathering possessions. We're stressed and hurried and harried, too busy to consider eternal things 
in our race to accumulate things that will fall apart and fail. We're being industrially distracted towards a trivial life and a meaningless death. And if you don't think that that's a snare of Satan, right, watch out. We've already seen in Ecclesiastes that Solomon's observation is that we just work hard to impress other people. So we spend ourselves to get ever more impressive, rusty, moth-eaten junk to impress dust. It really is chasing after the wind, right? Nothing could be more pointless than a life lived that way. But instead, because we know that we will die, we're free to pursue what matters most. We can glorify God with our lives because we know that it will result in eternal reward. We can be so heavenly minded that we are of some earthly good. Right, second thought you might be avoiding uh, thinking of death or thinking too little. Perhaps you're putting off important, even eternal things for later. James 4 again, instead you should say that if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. But as it is, you boast in your arrogance and all such boasting is evil. So it is a sin to know the good and yet not do it. So are you waiting for a better time to do what you know needs to be done? Maybe you've been coming to church and you're saying to yourself, hey, I'll get serious about Christianity when I'm older. You know, if nothing else, take this text as a warning to take your life seriously now while you can. Maybe you're considering, we'll get serious about God when I retire. Maybe we'll serve the church. Maybe we'll go on mission. Maybe we'll do whatever the case may be. Maybe it's uh, when my small children are old enough and they won't require so much of me, then I can give myself to uh, the work uh, that God has for me. The temptation that we all face is to believe that the next season will be the right time to do what's most important. We just have to get through this season first. That's going to lead you to a lifetime of putting off the good that you know you should do, which James tells us is sin. Instead, consider that your time is limited. And let's look for ways to do the good that you know to do. This is especially true this morning if you're not already a follower of Jesus. If you've heard the good news that though you're dead in your sin and trespasses against God, that Jesus came as God's son to live a life that you couldn't live, perfectly following the Father, never sinning, always obedient, and then dying the death that we deserve to die because we know that the wages of sin is death, and then was raised from the dead as proof that he has overcome sin, Satan, and the grave. But you're waiting for a better time to follow Jesus. Maybe when you've cleaned yourself up or when you've had all the experiences you want to have first, please don't be foolish. We're not promised another breath. Don't presume on God's patience. Take the free gift of life that God has so generously extended to you. Again, talk with me after the service. Any member of our church can articulate the gospel and tell you how you can have life in Christ. Don't put that off for tomorrow. Because for, for any of us, right, tomorrow may not come. Now, the third kind of big section of thought, we'll look at uh, four, one through three together here. Third question, would it have been better if you'd never lived? Solomon says, again, I observed all the acts of oppression being done under the sun. Look at the tears of those who are oppressed. They have no one to comfort them. Power is with those who oppress them. They have no one to comfort them. 
So I commended the dead who have already died, more than the living who are still alive. But better than either of them is the one who has not yet existed, who has not seen the evil activity that is done under the sun. That's devastating. And under the sun, it's true. We don't need to look far or to see much to know that what Solomon observes about human society hasn't changed a lot in a few thousand years. We still see systemic oppression, generational poverty, slavery, human trafficking, all kinds of other evils. We still see the powerful taking advantage of the weak, the solitary, and the poor. And then Solomon makes a crushing observation. He says, it would have been better if we had never been born than to see the evils that happen under the sun. Is it really as hopeless as that? If we look back to the beginning of the passage, uh, 3, 16, and 17, he says, I observed under the sun, there is wickedness at the place of judgment, and there is wickedness at the place of righteousness. Even those things that were meant for justice have been twisted to wickedness in our fallen world. We just studied this. If you were with us through our study of, of Saul, David, and Solomon, you could see uh, in the lives of Is Eli's sons who were meant to lead the congregation, the people of Israel, to worship and instead went astray. You could see it in Saul as his reign wore on. You could see it as David took advantage of his position to act wickedly against Uriah and Bathsheba. Now Solomon is observing these things, but as he's seeing them, what does he confess about them? Look at 17 again. I said to myself, God will judge the righteous and the wicked, since there is a time for every activity and every work. He says, yeah, things are messed up, but God hasn't missed a moment of it. In fact, he's seen all of it on a scale that we could not handle. Every injustice, every abuse, every wicked deed, every perversion of justice, he knows the score. And there is a day of reckoning coming when he will judge all of it perfectly. Psalm 33 tells us that the Lord looks down from heaven. He observes everyone. He gazes on all the inhabitants of the earth from his dwelling place. He forms the hearts of them all. He considers all their works. So he is consciously and actively looking down to observe all that happens under the sun. But not only that, he can't just sit back and watch. He's capable to do something about what he sees. Psalm 10 reminds us that the Lord is king forever and ever. The nations will perish from his land. Lord, you have heard the desire of the humble. You will strengthen their hearts. You will listen carefully, doing justice for the fatherless and the oppressed so that mere humans from the earth may terrify them no more. Like Solomon, we should say some things to ourselves when we're tempted to despair by what we observe happening under the sun. As he reminded himself, he said, he, he saw, he observed this wickedness, but then he said, God will judge. There's a time for that. We don't know when, but we know that God will right every wrong. He will punish or redeem every sin with perfect justice. We should remind ourselves of this as we watch the news, as we deal with evil in the world, and particularly when we see the evil prosper in spite of their wickedness, or we see the poor or the righteous suffer, uh, often at the expense of the wicked. 
So you're not alone if you find that particularly hateful. So did the psalmists, so does Solomon. But they all turned their eyes to God for hope that justice would be done in God's time, and so should we. So as we kind of close our time this morning, how, how should we live in light of the reality of death? Let's look at verse 22. He says, I've seen that there is nothing better than for a person to enjoy his activities because that is his reward. Is that all there is? You know, Solomon says, the best I can offer you is to be happy with what you do. Enjoy your work, enjoy being young, enjoy being a parent, enjoy your activities. That's your reward. It is a gift, right? We've been taught in past weeks that the ability to enjoy what happens in life is a grace from God, right? There's plenty of people who have all the things, all the places. Uh, Jim Carrey, probably, again, one of those like divide the congregation in half references. I don't think he does anything anymore. Uh, Once famously said that I wish everyone could get rich and famous to know that it's not the answer. You find a lot of people hit the top thinking all along that if only they could get to the top, things would have meaning, things would matter, it would be good, only to arrive there and find out that none of those things satisfy. So it is a gift from God for us to be able to enjoy our activities. So on the one hand, like, that's good. Let's appreciate that. Let's, let's do that. Let's look for ways to be grateful for the, the daily activities of life, for the little things that we have, right, for the mundane parts of life, which is most of it. And if we can get those right, a lot of uh, glory can be given to God in the small moments of our lives. But on the other hand, there's, there's a lot more hope for us. I want you to turn with me to 1 Corinthians 15. Right? If you're uh, familiar with your Bible, uh, you know, this would be a great space for you to spend the afternoon, is just read the chapter. We're going to start with the end, right? so verses 50 and following. After a a treatise on the resurrection and uh, what it looks like and how it's essential to the gospel, Paul tells us this this is where victory comes from. As you read this, think, man, don't you wish Solomon had the gospel? What I'm saying, brothers and sisters, is this. Flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor can corruption inherit incorruption. Listen, I'm telling you a mystery. We will not all fall asleep but we will all be changed in a moment in the twinkling of an eye at the last trumpet for the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised incorruptible and we will be changed for this corruptible body must be clothed with incorruptibility and this mortal body must be clothed with immortality. When this corruptible body is clothed with incorruptibility and this mortal body is clothed with immortality, then the saying that is written will take place. Death has been swallowed up in victory. Where death is your victory? Where death is your sting? Because the sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God, who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, my dear brothers and sisters, be steadfast, immovable, always excelling in the Lord's work, because you know that your labor in the Lord is not in vain. How different is that from thinking that everything is futile, right? Don't you wish Solomon had the gospel? A few counterpoints to the issues that Solomon raised with life under the sun from our view where we can see life beyond the sun. One, our fallen and broken and corrupted flesh and blood bodies will be transformed into incorruptible immortal ones. Two, 
death will be. Sometimes this is a challenge, right? When you read this in a funeral and uh, you, you kind of neglect the thought of will take place is when you see the person in front of you, that is the sting of death, right? That is the pain that we follow. But death will be once and for all defeated. No more funerals, no more coffins, no more separations. Sin will be ultimately defeated. And death under the law has been replaced with victory in Jesus. Therefore, the work that you do now, doing the Lord's work, is not in vain. So as we think this morning, as is our practice, I want to give you a few moments to reflect. And uh, as we kind of think about how short life is, perhaps God has called you to consider your priorities. How does knowing that God is the central character of your life, of all of our lives, change how you live today? What might need to change in your life as you become a little more conscious of your death? And finally, I want you to remind yourself that your labor in the Lord is not wasted. It's not in vain. It's not futile. It's not chasing the wind. Because God has given us victory over futility and a meaningless death in Christ. Take a few moments and I'll close this in prayer. Father, as we consider the the reality of death, the brevity of our lives, and the preciousness that they have as a result, God, I pray that you would uh, help us to surrender them more and more to walking in the, uh, the way that you've called us to live, God, that we would be a people marked by faithfulness, by gratitude, by soberness, by an awareness of uh, our end, and that it would cause us to prioritize your things first, God, that we would, as Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount, seek first the kingdom of God, because we have so little time to spend that we don't want to waste or lose any of it in trivial pursuits. Uh, Father, thank you for the hope of the gospel, for the meaning and purpose that it puts into our lives to know that there is an eternity for those who live and walk with Christ in this life, where there is a real reward to be gained and real glory to be given to our Savior by the way that we live now. And that it is not meaningless, that our lives have more value than the animals, that life is not futile for us so long as we're in Christ. That's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Invite the band on stage. We'll continue to sing.